Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's August the 2nd. It's uh, just early afternoon in California uh, on the West Coast. Uh, for some, though, it's morning, or at least it was morning in America a couple of months ago. One of Joe Biden's principal cheerleaders, uh, the Nobel Prize winning economist Paul Krugman, had a piece uh, last month, just uh, over a month ago in July in the Times, saying it's morning in Joe Biden's America. And, and Krugman was arguing that the jobs are back and everything is back. We know now that a month to misquote the English Prime Minister Harold Wilson is a long time in politics. Things seem to be changing, particularly on the jobs front. Um, on the one hand, um, the job market is very hot uh, on the West Coast in Silicon Valley, where I am, according to the LA Times, at least. Um, it's the hottest job market since the dot-com boom. But of course, uh, things are different elsewhere. They always are in America. Um, the COVID Delta uh, alarm now is uh, raising worries about the labor revival. Um, quoting them, um, uh, quoting Reuters, this is particularly true for women and for uh, poorer communities and for uh, communities of color. Surprise, surprise. Always seems to be women in particular and communities of color who are most affected by uh, economic downturns. And even though there are a lot of jobs around, particularly high-tech jobs, here's a piece from a, a newspaper in Seattle saying that thousands of people in, on long-term unemployment still can't find a job. And uh, it's the same around the world. According to The Economist, Spain has a two-speed economy with high unemployment. Uh, this two-speed economy is very, very much true in the United States. Most troublingly, there's a, an unemployment cliff coming, according to CNBC, uh, when unemployment, um, when the emergency unem uh, uh, unemployment support comes to an end uh, next month, uh, seven and a half million people may fall off that cliff. Uh, and according to Fortune, it's 10 million people falling off that cliff. So unemployment is still a huge issue in America, particularly with these uh, unemployment support mechanisms, emergency support mechanisms coming to an end. Uh, my guest today has written a very important book about uh, what she calls the tolls of uncertainty, how privilege and the guilt trap shape unemployment in America. She's a professor um, of employment studies at, the university, uh, at a university in Pennsylvania. Her name is uh, Sarah uh, Damasque. Uh, Sarah, um, is the glass half full or half empty when it comes to the state of unemployment in America today? Should we, should we celebrate uh, this hot market for tech workers or should we fear this coming job cliff or the collapse of the job cliff uh, next month? I think that's a great question, Andrew. And I think the answer depends on which worker you are. 
I think if you're a worker who's on the boom side, then there are some, there's a lot of upside right now for some workers. But I think that for many workers, there's a lot of risk at the moment. And there's a lot of people who are long-term unemployed, who haven't been able to find work and who are facing the cliff, as you describe it. Um, who are going to lose their unemployment benefits in September. And um, for those workers, I'm really worried. What I, what I like about your book, uh, Sarah, I've been reading it all morning, is it's not just a dry academic study. Um, you. You, you went out and you talked, you interviewed, you followed the lives of a number of people who were dipping in and out of um, employment in America. How, how did you choose uh, the people you followed? So the way that I went about um, recruiting people for this study was that I found people who were um, receiving unemployment benefits um, from the state of Pennsylvania. And, um, and I recruited them actually from these um, career center meetings that they had to attend if they were receiving unemployment in the state. And then I tried to recruit about half of them women and half of the men because I was very interested in gender differences and I was also interested in people's experience by class by which I mean kind of their um, occupation and their educational level how that affected their unemployment experience so I also tried to have diversity in those experiences as well. The book uh, you, you suggest at the beginning is inspired by the work of Dorothea Lange, the great early 20th century photojournalist who covered the, the, the uh, sorry, the, the, human, uh, the human costs of the Great Depression. Two photographs in particular you cite at the beginning of the book, White Angel Breadline uh, and uh, Migrant Mother, uh, Time Magazine, one of the 100 most famous American photographs, which actually was a photograph of a woman called Florence Owen Thompson. Um, Sarah, are we back in the Great Depression and these images when you sat at the kitchen table of people today unemployed? Are you seeing these sorts of faces? I saw that kind of worried look on some people's faces. Some of the some of the people I met with didn't know how they were going to eat the next day. I mean, some people were wondering, do I eat go out to dinner every night anymore? So they had very different experiences, right? Some people thought, well, we will have to drop our weekly pizza night out. Some people thought we used to eat out four nights a week. Now we will eat out three. And some people thought, well, if my kids have enough to eat, I can get by on very, very little. So there was an enormous range in how much people had to sacrifice after they lost their job. And, and what I thought, what really made me think back to those photographs is that, that I think those photographs inspired us to rethink our policy decisions, to think about 
what was going on at the time, to think about what the unemployed needed from us so that we didn't have so many people on the edge of destitution and such great financial deprivation. And, and what I saw was people who experienced homelessness, who, who lost their heat, who lost their electricity, mothers who described going without food, without health, without necessary health care. I think we're closer to it than a lot of us think we are. Yeah, we've had a number of, of shows about the, uh, uh, the physical uh, consequences of, I guess, the deindustrialization of America. We had Kerry Arsenal to written a wonderful book, Milltown, award-winning book about the impact of this from a similar part of the world to you. You note that one of the most troubling tolls is the mental toll. There's obviously the physical toll. There's the, the toll of hunger, of unemployment. But you suggest that the, the mental toll is, is in many ways equal, if not worse, to the physical toll of, of, of today's unemployed America. And I think that the mental toll comes in many ways, right? There's the, the shame that many people feel having lost a job. There's the stigma. Then there's also the toll of bearing that burden, right? And and bearing the burden of all of the physical tolls and trying to grapple with that. And then trying to grapple with their anger and their hurt because many of them felt angry and they didn't know what to do with that. They felt uh, one of the... One of the um, women who I always think about when I'm asked to describe these emotional tolls had these bitter feelings and she hated having them. And she felt so conflicted about feeling so bitter. You know, this wasn't who she thought of herself as, as a bitter person. But she really, um, it, it, she, she told a story of having been let go by her employer and then they called her back and they actually kept her on because um, it turned out that they um, didn't have anyone else. They had kind of shut down her plant and moved most of the production to a plant in another state. And um, it turned out that the work that she did couldn't be done somewhere else. And um, they didn't have anyone who knew what she, what she did. And so they called her back and she worked remotely and she thought she was set. And then the whole process happened again and she was let go again. Um, and, and so to be, and then they asked her to train her replacement so that they could have someone who could do what she knew how to do. And I, and I think that training her replacement, that's what gave her what she described as that bitter feeling. And then learning to live with those feelings, learning to live with that disappointment, learning to live with kind of, you work with uh, an employer who kind of has this family friendly environment and or like, we're a team, we're a family. Uh, um, kind of shtick as their like way of recruiting their employees. And then they let you go and you're not part of the family anymore. <laughs> they, there's nothing <laughs> familial about that feeling. And, and people found that very hard. Sarah, your first book, um, Oxford University Press, another uh, highly acclaimed book for the family, How Class and Gender Shape Women's Work is specifically about uh, social class and gender um, in the workplace. And I guess you've carried this over into your interpretation 
of unemployment. The subtitle of the book could be, could be of this new book, How Class and Gender Shape Women's Unemployment. Um, what's the difference? What's the difference did you find in your research between, uh, and I know it's, it's hard to generalize, not every female and male is, is the same here, but what were the, the, the core gender differences in the experience of male and female unemployment? So there are some some ways in which there were similarities and some ways in which there are differences. And I think that some of the really important differences um, were, um, were, were related to healthcare and were related to um, the work that they did in the home and then how that spilled over into how they searched for work. So I'll start with healthcare. So with healthcare, I found that the women were much more likely to stop taking care of their health than the men were. The men, um, even when they lost, because most people, I'll back up a second, just in case your uh, viewers aren't familiar, that most people get their health insurance through their jobs. And so when people lose jobs, a lot of times they lose their access to their health insurance. And that was true with most of the people I met. And um, the majority of the men regained their health insurance and continued taking care of their health. Um, but this wasn't the case for the women. A lot of the women uh, didn't re regain their health insurance and they stopped taking care of themselves. And um, you women call this, um, Sarah, in the, the subtitle of the book, um, the the guilt gap, which you borrow from uh, the, the Washington Post columnist Ellen Goodman from a piece she wrote in October 2005 about mothers, fathers, and the guilt trap. What is the guilt trap, and why does that play such an important role in unemployed America? So I think the guilt gap is important because the um, historically we've thought about um, unemployment as something that... Um, it is very shameful for men because we have such um, strong expectations of men's continued unemployment. Um, and we think of health insurance as something that comes along with men's employment, right? You get a job and it brings you money and it also brings you health insurance. Um, and but here that wasn't the case. Once the men had lost their job, they tended to think of health insurance as something that became women's responsibility, a caregiving responsibility, not a breadwinning responsibility anymore. Um, and so they didn't, they didn't describe feeling much, if any, guilt about their wives not having health insurance, their kids not having health insurance. Some of them said, well, I got health insurance for myself, but I couldn't get it for my wife even though she's the one with more health problems than I, than I have. Um, and the women really didn't talk like that. They had a very opposite reaction. They talked about feeling lots of guilt about their job loss, lots of guilt about how their job loss caused the family to lose health insurance, lots of guilt about how they needed to um, sacrifice something in order to make up to the family for this loss. And so what they were sacrificing was their own health. And so the women described going without asthma medication, blood pressure medication, they stopped going to the doctors, they stopped 
eating as healthfully. There were many, many steps in which they took where they were sacrificing their own health. What about the issue of class here, Sarah? I'm not sure. I get the sense that most of the research you did was in the working class, particularly the white working class. But um, was there, are there differences in this uh, guilt uh, gap between middle class and working class Americans? And that's a great question. So with the health, the, with the health insurance, I did, so I have about, um, to answer your question about the class, whether there's a good class spread, there's about um, 50 men and 50 women. And then within that, there's about a 25-25 split across uh, class and gender. So we've got about four equal groups. They're not entirely equal. There's a little bit of unevenness, but it's about, it's, it, it, they're about comparably sized groups. So we can look across middle-class women, middle-class men, et cetera. Um, and so we could see, so the thing that I found very convincing was, and the reason why I really thought that it was a, a gender um, thing versus being a class thing is that the middle-class women who had many more resources than the working-class women were also doing this. They were also sacrificing their health at much higher levels than the middle-class men. I and mean, none of the middle-class men did this. None of the middle-class men sacrificed anything in regards to health, but the middle-class women did. And um, I see that someone's asked a question about COBRA. And so, yes, the middle-class men all purchased COBRA. <laughs> and quite a few of the working-class men purchased COBRA too, um, but very few of the women did including the middle-class women who had access to it because they had higher paying jobs, they had um, higher earning spouses, they had the ability to pay for it, but they were less likely to do so. Um, we had, uh, I'm not sure if you listened to this show, it was a very good one with Jessica Bruder, the author of Nomadland, talking about our precarious economy, uh, quoting Bruder, she said, wages and housing costs have diverged so dramatically that for a growing number of Americans, the dream of a middle-class life has gone from difficult to impossible. Uh, she speaks about the changing structure of, of the economy. How influential is this, the shifting from a proletariat to a precariat in your analysis of unemployment and men and women in the workforce and out of the workforce? I think, well, first, I, it's such a great book, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it is a wonderful book. For those people who haven't read it, Nomadland is even better than the film. And um, and and I'll I'll add that that the um, it's this question about um, uh, the the jobs becoming so, so much more precarious is such an important one because what happens when you're unemployed is that you are eligible for unemployment benefits that are roughly half of what you had been previously making. That is, if you're lucky enough to be eligible for unemployment benefits, a lot of people aren't eligible because states have um, gotten gotten narrower since about 2000 have become increasingly narrow about who they give unemployment benefits to. You know, we're all paying into them, but we're not all seeing equal access to those benefits. Um, but 
even if you are lucky enough to have access to them, because our wages have stagnated for so long, if you're a low wage worker, the benefits leave you destitute. So you are now receiving half of a poverty level wage, which means you were already living in poverty. And now you are just scrambling to get by, which is what I found was particularly true of many of the working class women, because they were the most likely to have those very low wage jobs. They were the most likely to be single mothers. They were the most likely to be so on the edge of that precarious position once they were unemployed. So policy is everything, Sarah, as you remind us. Uh, the Biden-Harris uh, team ran on uh, scaling up employment insurance. Uh, they're proudly, we talked about uh, Krugman saying that it's morning in America in terms of jobs. By Joe Biden uh, last month defended his unemployment benefits, uh, provided workers accept job offers. Um, and again, he's embracing job growth, but distancing himself from expanded benefits to date, for six months, it's hard, of course, over six months, to, it's, it's a bit early. What's your analysis of the Biden achievement when it comes to employment and particularly their confrontation of the unemployment epidemic created by the, the COVID crisis, Sarah? Um, well, to be honest, I... <laughs> I always want you to be honest, Sarah. <laughs> Do they, do they get a passing grade? Do they get a C, a D, an F? I, I wish I could be a little bit more enthusiastic. Um, I think that the I think that the bill that got passed in March was good that extended the supplemental benefits till September. But I think that the decision to step back from them amidst the criticism of the labor shortages was a mistake because I think we had an excellent opportunity to say, hold on a second, look at what the research on the CARES Act tells us, because the research on the CARES Act tells us. So explain the research on what's the CARES Act? Yeah. So the CARES Act that got implemented. Oh, sorry, the CARES Act. Right. That got implemented at last year during the pandemic gave workers an extra $600. And um, there's already been a lot of research on it. <laughs> and there's a few things that we know. One, that um, when it went from being $600 down to $300, that there is no noticeable change in workers' re-entry into the labor market. So <laughs> it did not seem at the time to be keeping people out of employment, right? To be more generous with the unemployment benefit. That's one point. And that is um, something that research has consistently found um, when we look historically, that when um, unemployment benefits improve, that there is not substantial evidence to suggest that workers stay out of the labor market. There's a lot of um, anecdotal evidence from someone who owns um, I don't know, some sort of service chain who will go out and say, I can't find a worker. But when you when you go and you look um, at the at the evidence uh, 
nationally, the evidence isn't there to suggest that more generous benefits keep workers out. So that's point one. And the CARES Act evidence suggests the same thing. Point two is that what the other evidence that when we look at the CARES Act suggests that what it did do was it kept people from facing great material hardship. The people who uh, received it faced far less material hardship than the, than the people who were unemployed who did not receive it. How fearful so, are we, should we be, um, uh, of, of the cliff, uh, Sarah? Um, I think this cliff should... that apparently 7.5 million, or perhaps according to Fortune, 10 million people will fall off next month. I think we should be worried because I think my research is, and others suggest that people find it harder to find work without benefits because benefits allow them to search for work. When people are not, the less generous the benefits are, the more time people have to spend scrambling to survive and the less time they can spend is searching for work. What happens if they don't get jobs? Do they just turn into this woman from 100 years ago? I, I don't know if they turn into that woman, but I think what, what Or this guy. I mean, uh, we all have the images of the terrible human suffering of the Great Depression. I think what happens is that they have a very hard time finding stable work and once that happens, it triggers a cycle in which they become likely to become cyclically, chronically unemployed. So they become part of uh, uh, Jessica Bruder's precariat, the, the people she followed in Nomad Land. Uh, finally, uh, Sarah, you have five policy recommendations. You're a policy wonk, unashamedly. Mm -hmm. Uh, and you end the book saying, look, we can deal with this. There are five things that we need to do. Briefly go through your policy recommendations. So I argue that we should make current policies clearer. This is very clear to me. Most people didn't even know whether they were following the rules correctly. <laughs> um, and so... Who makes I, these rules? Uh, dumb bureaucrat? <laughs> I think people who... Um, People who have learned to respond to what they think is the will of the people rather than the needs of the unemployed. And so they're not people who, who, like you, have sat on the other side of the kitchen table from these people. No, I don't think. Are they, they calling are. you? They should be, Sarah. I hope you're getting involved in policy. I hope if Joe Biden or any of these people are working, they'll give you a call. So, what other policy recommendations are there, Sarah? So the second is that I, I have suggested that we need new ways to calculate um, unemployment benefits. And there's actually been a um, group of nonprofit organizations that came out with a similar recommendation just uh, a couple of months ago. So, um, and I, I'd be ha I can send this to you if you want to put a link up in your... Um, up for your readers. Well, give, give out your email and for people, uh, if you want to give out your email or your Twitter account, if people want to contact you for this. Yeah. Uh, what else, Sarah? So we've got new ways of calculating benefits, clearer policies. What about child on the childcare credit expansion? What, what does child, that mean? 
So currently we have childcare credits that are available to, to low wage workers, but you lose your credits if you lose your job, which makes no sense because then you can't search for work because catch you have to It's always these, these policies always seem to be catch twenty two. Exactly. You have a child at home and now you can't go go to your job interview with your child in your car. And if you, I mean, with your child with you, and if you leave your child in your car, you get arrested and Child Protective Services takes your kid away. Um, so, so then, so we got child care, credit expansion, and then you've got expansion of, of health care provisions. Uh, Should everyone then, get some some health care, whether or not they're employed or not? Yes, I think, well, personally, I think we we would benefit from a universal health care policy. The, the book yeah. recommendation... Well, I think we all agree on that, but that's politically not very realistic. Yeah, the book recommendation is specifically for health care for the unemployed because they lose their health insurance when they're unemployed, and we don't have any provision for that. Um, and it causes very clear problems. And we know from research that there's huge long-term um, health um, uh, health problems associated with unemployment. And finally, uh, finally, uh, rethinking back-to-work incentives. We have vaccine incentives. People paid to get a vaccine. So uh, I. I think now there's that, certainly something in, in rethinking, uh, incentivizing people to get back to work. No, see, I have no problem um, talking about um, incentivizing people to go back to work, but I think that we need to do it thoughtfully, right? That currently the, the thought is it, people don't want to, but that's not really it at all. People just don't need time to find the right job. And we want them to find the right job. We don't want them to go find a job that isn't the right job for them, or they'll be back on the unemployment line before we know it. And finally, Sarah, what can we hope for in terms of unemployment? There's always going to be some unemployed. Where could we be in a year or two if the Biden administration follows the correct policies on this? Well, I think that if we get ourselves back to a full unemployment we could have under, I mean, it would be nice to see less than three or 4% unemployed. That would be exceptional, but would be even better is if the people who, if would be to be there and then for the people who are unemployed to not be living in poverty. I'm guessing most of the people watching this won't know what it's like to be seriously unemployed. We've had lots of shows about the meaning of work and dropping out of the workforce and traveling around the world. That is, again, a class thing. But Sarah's new book, The Tolls of Uncertainty, How Privilege and the Guilt Gap Shape Unemployment in America, may not be quite uh, Dorothea Lang, but it's an important and necessary study. Congratulations on the book. It's out today. Uh, Sarah, in addition to that, I know you are um, in Pennsylvania at your university. What else should people be reading, uh, particularly to make sense of employment and unemployment in, a, in an ever-changing America? Um, well, I've been reading Leah Rao's Crunch Time on uh, married couples. I uh, highly recommend it. Married couples what? How married couples confront unemployment. Oh, my God. It's bad enough being married, let alone being married uh, to someone who's unemployed, right? Yeah, it's very interesting. <laughs>
Well, Sarah Damaski, thank you so much. Congratulations on the book. And we'll have you back on the show in the not-too-distant future to talk about employment and unemployment in Biden's America. Thank you. Keep well. Thanks. Take care. Thanks for having me.